Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. I'm James Harding. I'm the editor of Tortoise and the host of The News Meeting. It's the podcast where we try and make sense of what should be leading the news with three people who each come and pitch the story that they think matters the most. On the latest episode, we're joined by the journalist, historian and author Satnam Sanghera. Like almost everyone, we go down the rabbit hole of that Princess of Wales photo editing story, and then Satnam explains why he thinks the Church of England paying reparations for its links to slavery should really be leading the news. Just search for Tortoise News wherever you get your podcasts and follow the feed so you don't miss an episode. Tortoise. It's deep winter. Wave after wave of bodies surge forward, and it seems, for a moment, like an apocalyptic video game. Some people compared this to some kind of zombie survival game, when you're just uh, shooting into the hordes of zombies, and you don't let them to come closer. In freezing temperatures, Ukrainian soldiers like Dmitry fire into the gloom, mowing down first dozens and then hundreds of Russian stormtroops launching every 20 minutes. I uh, had an ammo for one night battle, but it was too little. I just could not imagine the harshness of the battles. In eastern Ukraine, a brutal fight is unfolding. The ground is littered with bodies. This is what madness looks like, Ukraine's president Vladimir Zelensky says as the situation deteriorates. Nearly a year into its invasion of Ukraine, it had been months since a significant Russian victory. And now all focus is on two strategically important towns, Bakhmut and Solidar, just 15 kilometers from each other. Bakhmut is the hardest battle, and time in Bakhmut goes differently. It goes faster. Only it's not just the Russian soldiers who are fighting. The zombies belong to a different force. Their advantage is in numbers. You have to understand that they have no honor and conscience. These were not trained fighters. These uh, prisoners, they have nothing to lose. That's why they are... Uh, very much motivated to go and fight. They are dying in large numbers. These were mercenaries recruited by the Wagner Group private military company. Thousands of them former convicts recently freed from jail. Their insignia, a grinning skull. Wave after wave, they're sent into the meat grinder. Of the estimated 50,000 prisoners conscripted in Russia by the Wagner Group, most end up on the battlefields of Bakhmut and Solidar. And as January drags on, the strategy seems to be working. Ukrainian forces appear to prepare for an organised retreat. And it's against this backdrop, this particularly bloody scene in the theatre of Russia's war, 
that a man called Yevgeny Viktorovich Prigozhin takes center stage. Let me introduce you to Yevgeny Prigozhin. Yevgeny Prigozhin. They call him Putin's chef. After months of attrition, Yevgeny Prigozhin claims victory in Solidar for the Wagner Group. On January 10th at 9 p.m., he announces that no units other than the fighters of the Wagner Group took part in the assault on Solidar. It's a victory, but not for the Russian army, but for Wagner. And it's a jarring moment, because Yevgeny Prigozhin, a former hot dog seller and caterer, has until very recently denied any connection with this private military company. In fact, he's spent thousands trying to sue journalists who claim otherwise. One he sued over a tweet. So that cost me £70,000. <laughs> Blimey. Yeah. But by the time of the assault on Solidar, something had changed. Now he was claiming a major strategic victory for a private fighting force. It's been absolutely maddening because the whole thing has been like absurd and annoying and time-consuming. And only, you know, a year ago, I was being sued for saying exactly the kind of things that he's now doing very openly. Soon, he's becoming a showman. Here, in a video released in early February, he's filmed in a Sukhoi Su-24 fighter plane, challenging the Ukrainian president to a dogfight. Within a matter of weeks, he's transformed from this shadowy figure, appearing only sporadically, to a provocateur courting the press. So what's changed? Chaos is a ladder in Russia, and he's trying to climb it as quickly as possible. I'm Basha Cummings, and you're listening to the Slow Newscast from Tortoise. And this is the story of Yevgeny Prigozhin's war, a tale that begins and ends in Ukraine, but unfolds elsewhere, deep in Central Africa, and tells us about a new era in Russia's hybrid war. Yevgeny Prigozhin didn't start life in the Russian political elite. His father died when he was young and his mother worked in a hospital. And after a series of thefts, he served years in a penal colony from 1981 until 1990 when he was released and he set up a hot dog stand in St. Petersburg. From there, he expanded into supermarkets and then restaurants. Ilya Ponomarev is a former Russian MP. He's speaking to my colleague, Will Brown. Did you ever meet Prigozhin when you were back in Moscow? I met him once, uh, but as a waiter as a waiter in his uh, restaurant in St. Petersburg because I was visiting. And at the time when we were there, because it was a very high-profile foreign delegation, so Prigozhin came to serve us. <laughs> you know, that's, but that's, uh, obviously he was not uh, the Prigozhin we know, uh, we know today. At the time, he was uh, no military commander. Was he a good waiter? Did you leave him a tip? Yes, <laughs> we did. <laughs> we did. Through his businesses, Yevgeny Prigozhin comes into contact with the mayoral office in St. Petersburg and with one politician in particular, Vladimir Putin. Remember, this is Russia in the 1990s. It is chaos, lucrative chaos, a period of market liberalization following the collapse of the Soviet Union. And so begins Prigozhin's upwards climb, rung by rung. And that's actually how he got his influence uh, because uh, Putin loved him and he loved his restaurant. And it's a very secluded place. That's why Putin 
uh, liked uh, to make all his uh, shady deals with uh, St. Petersburg organized crime uh, in that location. He knew that there would be no leaks and that nobody would uh, see him. There would be no uh, eyes from the outside that he wanted to avert. Soon, Prigozhin's empire is expanding. In the early 2000s, he begins winning government contracts for catering through his company, Concord. He provides food for big events and later for schools and for the military. But he isn't yet a player, shall we say. He is always in the background, still hovering behind the powerful, but not yet one of them. And he's seen in photographs in restaurants and at banquets behind Prince Charles or serving George W. Bush. Abbas Galimov is a former speechwriter for Vladimir Putin. He now lives in Israel, and this month he was declared a foreign agent by the Russian Ministry of Justice. We didn't discuss him much. He was, since he was, like you should understand, among those people who were making contracts with him, paying to him money, maybe they were discussing him, but I was not among those people. I was among those people who were mostly discussing uh, public politics. And he was a non-existent factor in public politics at all. So we just didn't discuss it. But things start to change in 2013. From catering, Yevgeny Prigozhin pivots to politics and to trolling. He quietly finances the Internet Research Agency, which becomes known as the troll farm behind a firehose of disinformation aimed at disrupting the 2016 US presidential election. And if it is Russia, which is probably not, nobody knows who it is. Supported by the Kremlin, it wreaks havoc. It sows distrust. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. The US later criminally indicts the Internet Research Agency for obstructing the lawful functions of the government. For the Kremlin, in other words, a success. And so the former hot dog seller, still very much in the shadows, continues to climb. By now, it's 2014, and the stakes are about to get much, much higher for Yevgeny Prigozhin. In February of that year, Russia annexes Crimea. And suddenly, so-called little green men, soldiers with no insignia, no identifying marks, begin to appear. At first, it's not clear who they are. But over time, the picture comes into focus. Operatives from Russia's military intelligence, the GRU, are present. But so too are military contractors from an entirely different organisation. They belong to a group only recently established, allegedly by a man called Dmitry Utkin, a former Russian special forces officer with what appears to be a Nazi Waffen-SS tattoo on his neck. Almost nothing is known about them at first, and there's certainly no apparent link to Yevgeny Prigozhin. They are a nascent mercenary force, with a presence first in Syria and then eastern Ukraine. But then the name keeps cropping up. Wagner. If the legend is to be believed, it's a reference to Dmitry Utkin's call sign and a nod to Hitler's favourite composer. There are growing questions surrounding mercenaries who are being sent to Syria. We have some exclusive reporting, Clarissa, about Russian mercenaries in the Central African Republic. Meanwhile, the Malian government, interestingly, has denied the presence of Russian mercenaries in their country. Russian private military contractors are active in 16 African nations. That's according to AFRICOM.
So my name is Lou. I'm not going to give my full name because we are working on a, a group that is quite uh, dangerous and it's quite risky for us. And so I'm one of the lead researcher of the project All Eyes on Wagner. So we are investigating Wagner Group everywhere. Tell me, how risky is it to investigate what Wagner have been doing in Africa over the last few years? It's quite risky. Uh, the first journalists that tried to work on that, there were three Russian journalists, they were killed and they would have been allegedly killed by Wagner operatives. So it, it's rather risky. In Africa and the Middle East, the work of Wagner becomes separated into three areas, all feeding each other. First, they act as mercenaries, providing security for different governments. But they also form companies using those security services, often protecting natural resources like diamonds, gas, gold and oil, all of which generate money. And they run cyber units to build influence. They're talked of as liberators. If Wagner went to liberate Syria, if Wagner went to liberate the Central African Republic, then we welcome Wagner to Bamako to liberate Mali. If we were to take Central African Republic as a bit of a case study, can you just tell me what you've been investigating there? So actually, the Central African Republic is a true example of the full set of Wagner operations. So today they are training uh, the FACA, so it's the, the national, uh, the conventional army of the of the government, and they are conducting joint operation with them in some area of the country to try to repel some uh, militias. So that's for the I would say army side. Then they have really developed a lot of businesses, a lot of activities in Central Africa. So the ones that are quite known are uh, the mining operation, which are today owned by a, a company that has been sanctioned. It's called Lobey Invest. And so they manage, they operate uh, gold and diamond mines. But they are also involved in more funny business. They have two vodka brands that they try to sell locally and they have just launched a beer. Is there a big vodka market? No, in... <laughs> uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> but uh, beer a bit more. And um, really, I think their strategy there, because historically it has been French, there have been a lot of French companies established. The Central African Republic is not a massive market. It's a very poor market. But they are really trying to get rid of all the French contenders. And what about um, civilian atrocities? Because they have been accused yeah. of, of that in Mali and in, I think, Central yes. African Republic. There have been a lot of testimonies about violences, human rights abuses. So from what we have seen, sexual violences, there, there are a lot of rapes. Uh, that would be conducted by them when they do those joint operations. Um, they have been as well, so there is a, a minority of Muslim groups in uh, Central African Republic, so they have vandalized mosques, and this we can see, we, we have images of that. And they have been killings of people, so when they try to repel militias, often they go through villages, and when they arrive in those villages, they, as an example, they, they, they shoot people uh, dead, basically. So it's no secret that Russian mercenaries are active in at least half a dozen countries around the world. They've been accused of fomenting instability. But now, according to our investigation, they may well be guilty of war crimes. We wanted to travel to the Central African Republic, but we were refused access on the grounds of our previous reporting. 
All the while, the Kremlin has denied any links to the group. In May of 2022, Sergei Lavrov, Russia's foreign minister, said that Wagner had nothing to do with the Russian state. That same month, Wagner mercenaries were accused of storming a maternity hospital in the capital of the Central African Republic and raping healthcare workers. Elliot Higgins is the founder of Bellingcat, a group of investigative journalists who have been following Wagner since 2020. A lot of it is really about supporting Russian interests. You've got to think of them in terms of, you know, almost a proxy for Russian military interests. The more that journalists and human rights organisations investigate, the clearer it becomes that Wagner is operating in service of the Kremlin and its interests abroad. A shadow military and commercial force bypassing sanctions and doing the dirty work that the Russian state itself cannot. Lou and other investigators amass evidence. They map interests and mostly by following the money, they glimpse at Wagner's murky leadership structure. The leadership structure is still very difficult uh, to understand. And the way people have worked, and it's really the way we are trying to work ourselves, it's basically trying to map all those companies that appear, you know, in Mali, in Syria, in Libya, uh, and that are basically paying the mercenaries that are there or, or that are the owner of some of the mines or, or oil and gas assets. And we try really to go back up to Russia and to see who is the, the ultimate beneficiary of all those companies. And each time, the one that appears is Yevgeny Prigozhin. The last question that we don't fully understand is really the link with the Russian government. That is not really clear. Today, they train uh, on a training camp in Molkino, which is really next to the GRU uh, training camps. So they are really like neighbor. So it's unbelievable to imagine that they don't talk to each other. According to British intelligence, Wagner's primary training area is within a Russian MOD facility, opened in September 2022 by Yevgeny Prigozhin himself. But even as its name and its interests have become better known, he goes to pretty extreme lengths to deny any involvement. So following our investigations, um, the EU, US and UK sanctions Wagner and uh, Prigozhin. Now, in the EU sanctions, it specifically quotes Bellingcat's re research on him and Wagner as one of the reasons they're sanctioning him. Sometime later, I get a letter in the post from his lawyers in the UK saying that I'm being sued. And it's for a series of tweets I sent out linking to articles that Bellingcat articles and an article by Spiegel and CNN, where inside those articles, his connections are described to Wagner, which he at the time is denying. And I'm being sued for, you know, the contents of those articles, which is strange in itself. It's not what I've, the actual contents of the tweets. So I, I'm just a little confused about how you can be sued for something like that, especially when I know Bellingcat, CNN and Spiegel were not being sued for those articles by him. And have you ever been sued before personally? Um, no, I, we, there's been some attempts at legal actions against us, but they generally just fall apart because they aren't you know, really legitimate. So, okay. So just in terms of your own kind of personal response, was it quite a shock to realize that this guy was sort of coming after you individually? I mean, it was, it was shocking because I couldn't understand how he could do this when he's sanctioned in the UK because he was paying lawyers in the UK to sue me. 
Yevgeny Prigozhin was sanctioned by the British government in 2020. He was given a travel ban and an asset freeze for significant foreign mercenary activity in Libya and multiple breaches of the UN's arms embargo there. But despite this, in 2021, his UK lawyers applied to the Treasury for permission to bypass those sanctions. And remarkably, the Treasury agrees, which allows Prigozhin to pay his lawyers in the UK so that he can sue Elliot Higgins personally in something called a slap case, a strategic lawsuit against public participation. Was there a period where you genuinely thought you might be going to court, that you would have to, you know, fight him and it was going to cost tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of pounds. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it was moving in that direction. The only reason it didn't happen is because his lawyers pulled out and he wasn't able to continue by himself. Had that not have happened, you know, had it not been for Putin's invasion of Ukraine, I would probably still be going through, you know, the court case now and those costs would be mounting up. The full-scale invasion of Ukraine in February 2022 proved a turning point in the case. As Vladimir Putin launched a land and air offensive across the country, Yevgeny Prigozhin's lawyers, a firm called Discrete Law, dropped him. And after he failed to file the correct paperwork, the case is thrown out. But that still costs about £70,000 uh, just of legal fees to get to that point. And keep in mind, this wasn't even the court case. This was the preamble to the actual court case. So had it actually reached that point, it could have cost hundreds, if not you know, millions of pounds. But the invasion of Ukraine didn't only change the course of the lawsuit. It transformed Yevgeny Prigozhin's relationship with the public and with the press. Now established as a player with a slate of Russian state catering contracts worth billions of dollars, politically close to the Kremlin, funding Wagner Group, he was about to emerge from the shadows and lay claim to a new era of Russian warfare. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. I'm James Harding. I'm the editor of Tortoise and the host of The News Meeting. It's the podcast where we try and make sense of what should be leading the news with three people who each come and pitch the story that they think matters the most. On the latest episode, we're joined by the journalist, historian and author Satnam Sanghera. Like almost everyone, we go down the rabbit hole of that Princess of Wales photo editing story, and then Satnam explains why he thinks the Church of England paying reparations for its links to slavery should really be leading the news. Just search for Tortoise News wherever you get your podcasts and follow the feed so you don't miss an episode. Eight years after the invasion of Crimea, eight years after they were known rather innocuously as the Little Green Men, the Wagner Group returns to Ukraine. And at first, they appear to have a singular mission. In late February, the Times in London reports that 400 Wagner mercenaries have been flown in from Africa to assassinate Vladimir Zelensky, Ukraine's president and members of his government. As the war unfolds and Ukraine mounts its extraordinary resistance, the Wagner Group's presence is documented as some of the most critical and most brutal moments of the conflict. The massacre in Bucha, 
Is this evidence that could amount to war crimes? Several bodies litter the street. The assault on Mariupol. The Russians have not been merciful in their assault on Mariupol, unsparing in their utter destruction of the city. And slowly, Yevgeny Prigozhin begins to appear. In April, two months into the invasion, he's pictured wearing combat uniform, apparently near the border in eastern Ukraine. By June, he appears to be given the title of Hero of Russia by Vladimir Putin for his services to the state, and he's soon photographed wearing the Star Medal. And as it becomes clearer that the Russian army is struggling, that this isn't going to be a quick win as Putin had hoped, Yevgeny Prigozhin becomes a bigger and bigger figure. Everything started changing after it became obvious that uh, the Russian army failed. And uh, Putin desperately needed a savior. And Prigozhin actually became a kind of a savior. So there is no exaggeration to tell that Prigozhin was uh, the man of the year, the man of the previous year in Russian politics. After all, Prigozhin has been a faithful servant and beneficiary of Putin's system of power and patronage. And so where there is a need, he answers it. And now there is a need for manpower, for bodies. The Russian army wasn't winning this war and it needed help. And so Prigozhin steps in. Between spring and summer, the Wagner Group begins recruiting in Russian prisons. A video finds its way onto the internet of Prigozhin standing in a yard surrounded by prisoners. I represent the private military company Wagner, he says. Maybe you've heard of it. If you serve six months in Wagner, you are free, he tells them. If you arrive in Ukraine and decide it's not for you, we will execute you. They have five minutes to decide. According to British intelligence, 40,000 convicts were enlisted, a huge shift in recruitment and a significant lowering of the bar. In Africa, there are rules for those wishing to go and work for Wagner, but not in Ukraine. And they really opened uh, the recruitment to anybody. So it, the only condition was not to have any relative in uh, NATO countries. But you could be, you know, sick, uh, like with disease, which usually they don't take within Wagner uh, elsewhere. Uh, you could have criminal records. They were taking everybody. And then, obviously, they went to the prison. And so for us, the understanding of that is that Ukraine, they need cannon fodder, basically. Just days after the video is made public, Yevgeny Prigozhin finally comes into the open. And he not only admits his link to Wagner, he boasts about it. And the telegram channels of the Wagner PMC, followed by hundreds of thousands of people, are now buzzing with ultra-nationalist videos and memes and voice notes and photographs from the war in Ukraine. It's a real melting pot of gamer culture and troll content, snuff videos and brash, macho imagery building up the Wagnerites as an elite fighting force, living, breathing war machines. They pump out the same story, that Wagner is playing a pivotal, positive role in Putin's so-called special military operation. So it seems as if Yevgeny Prigozhin is reaching the upper rungs of the ladder that he's been climbing since the 1990s. He's got popular support at home, he's rebranded, as one New York Times journalist put it, he has come to symbolize wartime Russia, ruthless, shameless, and lawless. But it puts him on a collision course. 
Olga Biga is an officer of the Ukrainian Territorial Defense. She joined as a volunteer with her mother and younger brother just after the invasion in February. Before that, she was a lawyer. She grew up 35 kilometers from Bakhmut. So it hurts for me to watch how Russia destroys everything in its path. In its brutality and the scale of the dead, in its bleakness and futility, the front lines of Bakhmut have been compared to the Western Front of World War I, where wave after wave of fighters were sent to their deaths. Actually, Bakhmut is the hardest battles. Uh, Bakhmut is exhaustion, fatigue, endless assaults, battles 24 hours, 7 days per week. And time in Bakhmut goes differently. It goes faster. It's a far cry from the propaganda circulating on Wagner telegram channels. We met uh, recruited convicts by Prigozhin. Their advantage is in numbers. But you have to understand that they have no honor and conscience. They are murderers, criminals, rapists who came to get their ticket for freedom. Dmitry Murachnik used to be a tattoo artist and a shoemaker. Now he's a lieutenant fighting on the front lines in eastern Ukraine against Wagner. And he recently survived a brutal offensive. I just could not imagine the harshness of the battles. And right after the third or fourth human wave, it was like 100% quiet in the forest. And then someone uh, that used the heat vision gadget says like, oh, Jesus, there are dozens of them and starts shooting. I couldn't see anybody because um, it was a forest, you know, and when the bullets are going through, you don't actually know what that is that a person moving or is just some branch breaking from the tree because uh, it was shot by the machine gun fire. In a break in the fighting, Dmitry goes to see the enemy, to see who it is that he's been shooting at. He had no Russian uniform. He was dressed up like um, like he was a hunter, you know, hunt, hunting camouflage, stuff like that. And he looked very bad. I mean, uh, this was a guy like in his 50s, but his face was telling me that uh, he was actually very ill or he lived in a very harsh conditions. Like uh, his face told me that he's like in his 80s or 70s, but his body was like he's in his 40s or 50s. These are the men that Prigozhin claims victory for in Solodar in January of 2023. He shares a picture of himself surrounded by fighters supposedly in the Solidar salt mines. And in a video, he boasts that Wagner units alone control the territory. But the Russian army's struggles cannot simply be Prigozhin's gain, and a rift appears. Because he hasn't only become more visible, he's also become more critical. Wagner is not the Russian defense. It's not the Russian military. It's a separate group. And he's emphasizing this word exclusively, that it was he and not they. And he's taking it even further than that. He has been openly criticizing Russia's official military leaders. 
In Bakhmut, he's railed against military bureaucracy. And so at first, in Solidar, the Russian Ministry of Defense doesn't initially acknowledge Wagner's involvement. It's, uh, it's like competition between uh, the army and Prigozhin, and uh, they're both running, trying to show that they're more efficient than the other. On Telegram, Prigozhin claims there's an attempt to steal victory from his mercenaries. And soon afterwards, in a statement, the Ministry of Defense corrects itself and thanks the courageous and selfless actions of the volunteers of Wagner's assault squads. All the military, they are absolutely displeased with the way he behaves. Uh, uh, like he's uh, literally wiping his feet uh, on them. And uh, he's humiliating them, behaving as if they are dirt. He's become a powerful figure. Profile after profile is being written about him. And so people begin to ask, could he be a challenger to Vladimir Putin? And so given your sort of, I guess, as direct an encounter with Prigozhin as most of us would ever have, and in such a sort of targeted way, how have you watched what's unfolded in Ukraine and his sort of the birth of this new Prigozhin persona? It's been absolutely maddening because the whole thing has been like absurd and annoying and time consuming. But now he's, you know, opening his arms to it. He's on the front lines. He's in prisoners recruiting, you know, Russian prisoners to join Wagner. He posted a video where, where he was in a military jet bombing positions. You know, it, it's so absurd. And only, you know, a year ago, I was being sued for saying exactly the kind of things that he's now doing very openly. I mean, he's definitely involved with Wagner. I can say that without probably being sued anymore. It is a dizzying bait and switch. I think he now sees this as a political opportunity. It's all very kind of Game of Thrones in Russia at the moment. You know, chaos is a ladder in Russia and he's trying to climb it as quickly as possible. So he's been using Wagner to cement his power, showing that they're kind of superior to the Russian military defense and what they're doing there. So that's really, I think, been a core to a lot of this. He's trying to establish more political power. If you listen to Abbas Galiamov, Putin's former speechwriter, you might think that Prigozhin has been unleashed. Putin is already uh, losing control over the situation and Russia, his control is weakening. So a lot of things are happening just because they're happening without uh, Putin's uh, permission. And uh, Putin is, he just doesn't have enough strength to take care of everything and to, to control everything like he was doing uh, before. So Prigozhin, he's showing that normality is over that the system is already beyond normal. It's, it, it went crazy. But there are signs that he can only go so far. After Prigozhin amplified criticism of General Gerasimov, chief of the Russian military's general staff, sniping that he was sequestered in a warm office away from the front lines, Putin actually made Gerasimov the chief commander of the war in Ukraine. And now rumours circulate that the Kremlin has asked the media to toned down their coverage of Wagner's main man, which points to a different story, one supported by the investigators of the group that I've spoken to, who say to believe that Prigozhin is a real challenger is to misunderstand his place within Russia and its war on Ukraine. It's true that recent reports suggest that he's being put back in his box. The prison recruitment drive has now been halted, and Prigozhin admits that that will shrink his forces in Ukraine. 
and this may backfire on him. I mean, he may start having problems with this soon, but at the moment, he is trying to use this to establishing a much more stronger position in kind of post-conflict Russia. But I think it's one of these things where there's so many kind of competing factions now within the Russian government and in various ministries. It's very hard to predict where this could go. I mean, he could be thrown out of a window kind of tomorrow for all we know, but we'll have to see. But there is little question that for now, Prigozhin is a helpful figure to Putin, a larger-than-life bogeyman who appears separate, unaccountable, unleashed, and yet is undeniably a product of a system that has served Putin and the Kremlin for decades. Prigozhin cannot operate without the Kremlin approval. And I think we need to have that in mind. So when he's going so public... I think there is still a government intention behind it, and I would really not disconnect the two, contrary to what a lot of people have been uh, you know, writing. I don't think there is, he's not going rogue and trying to you know, uh, take the cover for everything. If he's still operating, that means there is approval, and today in Africa, he's still operating a lot. Some believe that Putin factored in Wagner's off-book hard currency revenue from across Africa and the Middle East, from gold and diamonds and oil, to make up for losses Russia expected due to sanctions. Meaning that they were, and always have been, part of the calculation for war. Now, the way we are looking at it, and the question we have, because I don't have a definite answer, is whether we are using him as a tool, still a little bit of a deniability tool, where whether we're going to be able to say, oh, the failure of Russia is actually not the Russian state, it's Brikogine. And if they are not trying already to prepare kind of after the Ukrainian war, where if he wins, perfect, then, you know, we give him a knock on the head and, uh, and we tell him to calm down a little bit, which we saw with Soledad. But if he loses, then we're going to suddenly put everything onto him because kind of help as well uh, Vladimir Putin to distance a little bit. Prigozhin may soon have another victory to spin. At the time of writing this, it looks like Bakhmut will be taken by the Russians as the Ukrainians lay the ground for a retreat. It will be a sorry victory made at an enormous cost to life. Like so many oligarchs forged in the 1990s, Prigozhin emerged in a moment of lucrative chaos and he climbed. Now he's sowing more chaos around the world, feeding instability in countries that are vulnerable to his particular brand of misinformation and might. And it's still lucrative. So if chaos is a ladder, then Prigozhin has successfully climbed to the upper rungs. The problem is, it's still Vladimir Putin holding at the bottom, ready to kick it all from under him when it suits him. This episode was written and reported by me, Basha Cummings, and produced by Claudia Williams. Additional reporting was by Will Brown in Kiev, supported by the Cecil King Memorial Foundation and Patricia Clark. The sound design is by Tom Birchall. Tortoise. Hello, Tortoise listener. 
Are you on top of the news or is it on top of you? Don't worry, we've got the solution. Paper Cuts is the fast, funny, daily podcast where we look at the wonder and weirdness of the British press. I'm Miranda Sawyer and every weekday I'm joined by top comedians and smart journalists for a roller coaster ride through the daily papers. Tune in and we'll bring you the biggest, the weirdest and the most entertaining stories of the day in one handy half-hour package. That's Paper Cuts. We read the papers so you don't have to. Subscribe on your favourite app.